Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, we're going to dive right into this series that we're, we've been in called The Life of Elijah. And um, what's ironic is that we've been talking about a drought in Israel and we've had rain every single day for the last, feels like 14 years. But it's in moments like this, let me just throw this out there. Thank God we're not in a drought. Praise God. I know one of our biggest inconveniences is that we can't cut our grass, but thank God we have grass. And so God has provided. But I want to dive right back into this, this message because we've been looking at the life of one of the greatest men in history, a man who was fearless, a man who was courageous, a man who was willing to be uncompromising, a man who was willing to follow God and do the hard things. And this man, of course, I'm speaking of Elijah. In the last few messages, we've talked about how Elijah showed up out of seemingly nowhere and confronted the most powerful man in the nation, King Ahab. And he confronted not only Ahab, but his pagan wife, Jezebel. He confronted Ahab and Jezebel, and in doing so, really confronted the nation. And that took a lot of courage, that took a lot of willingness to obey God. But God, God can take a man like that and use him to do great things. When a man fears God, he need not fear men. And he feared God, and so God used him in a powerful, powerful way. And so, what courage, what boldness, and what obedience to God. We've been talking about the last couple of weeks, some of the adventures that he went on because he showed up out of nowhere and told the king essentially this, there will be no rain or no dew in all of Israel until I give the word because of your sin. Because you have, as a nation have sinned against God, there will be no rain and no dew. And there was no rain and no dew for three plus years while Elijah said these things. And so we've been talking about some of the adventures that he's been on, um, going, God providing for him at the brook and ravens coming to provide for him. And then God sending him to a Gentile woman, a Sidonian woman, Zarephath, where she provided. And then he prayed for her needs and her son. God raised her son from the dead through Elijah. So all of these powerful things. But now comes the high point. Now comes the confrontation between Elijah and these prophets of Baal. This false religion that had deceived God's people. I, I, I wanna just dive right in. If you will, go with me to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse one. This is what it says. It says, later on in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. Remember, the capital of Israel at this time was Samaria. So this is the capital city, and the, the famine had become so severe where they were. And what's interesting is that you have Ahab, who's been looking to kill Elijah, and has been looking for Elijah, as we're gonna see in the text in a little while. God 
sends Elijah right to the source, right to the man who's been looking to kill him, to tell him that God is getting ready to send rain. Verse three, so Ahab summoned Obadiah, and this is a new person. We're gonna talk about him for a moment. So Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devout, a devoted, excuse me, follower of the Lord. Once when Jezebel had tried to kill all the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden a hundred of them in two caves. He put 50 prophets in each cave and supplied them with food and with water. Now let me pause for a moment because I want to talk about this man Obadiah because we haven't heard anything about him. And we don't know much about this man except to say that he was devoted to God. He was a righteous man. Yet as a devoted righteous man, he served a wicked king. And this is interesting. He was devoted to God, he loved God, he cared about God's people, yet his boss, his king, was a wicked man who God himself was judging. Now many of us will look at this and we'll say, I would never do that, I would never serve that king, I would have confronted him, I would have pulled him aside and you would have probably been dead. Here's the thing, have you ever stopped to think that maybe God had Obadiah there to save the lives of his people. That maybe the reason Obadiah was there, and I believe it's very clear in the Bible, the reason why he was there serving that wicked king was not for the king's benefit. It was for the benefit of those hundred prophets that God preserved their lives. Let me make it personal for you for a moment. Maybe the reason why you are where you are with the wicked people that you are with, it's for their good. It's for God to use you to be a mouthpiece to them. Maybe there's a reason behind where you're at. Maybe that boss that you hate, maybe God has a plan for their life. Or maybe the other righteous people that are there that are with you, that you are walking alongside, maybe you're there to help encourage them to keep going. See, here's the thing about God that all of us need to know. God is sovereign. And we don't, we don't always understand what he's doing, but he is always doing something. Even when it doesn't make sense to us. So I've heard many people, I just, Pastor, I hate my job. My boss is, he's a pagan. My boss is the devil. Can I just tell you something? God loves your boss. God loves your boss. Maybe those wicked coworkers that you're there with, you're there so that you can be a light to them. Because I, I've heard it said many times, I'll say it like this, you are the only Bible that some people will ever read. And they're watching you and maybe God has you for such a time as this to be in the place that you are at so that you can be a light and a witness to them. God had his plan for Obadiah. God wanted Obadiah where he was for a specific reason. Maybe God has you there for a specific reason. Now back to this. This is how evil and how wicked Jezebel was. This was a wicked woman. She was trying to kill all of God's people. With her and her husband Ahab, they ushered in this pagan religion into God's people. They made it a prominent religion, deceiving God's people, bringing God's wrath on the nation. This was an evil woman. 
and as evil as Jezebel is, and I said this once before in this message, you cannot have a Jezebel without an Ahab. What do I mean by that? Ahab was the king. Ahab was the one in charge. Ahab was the one who was responsible. And Ahab is the one who allowed her influence to impact the nation. There's been men who say, I just don't trust my wife. She's a Jezebel. You must be an Ahab. As men, we have to take responsibility. Jezebels will attach themselves to someone's influence. They will attach themselves to someone's authority. But that Ahab has to let them do that. That Ahab has to be willing to not take responsibility and to let them do what they're doing. Again, men say all the time, in my marriage, my wife is this, my wife is that. Can I just tell you? You have the garden that you're tending. Hear me out. That term husband is an agricultural term. To be husband is to be husband men. They call that husband tree. If you are a, that, in that gardening, in agricultural terms, if you are a husband, you have a garden, you have fields, or you have wild animals, i.e. children. <laughs> and a husbandman is someone who cultivates the land. You have, you were given a plot of land and it's your job to tend to that land. Husbands, you were given, you were entrusted a woman that God gave to you and it's your responsibility to tend to her. I've heard it said like this as well. If you want to know how great a man is, look at the countenance of his wife. If she always looks down and always looks depressed and there's always an issue, then there's something that he's not doing right. And here's the thing, listen, hear me out. I know y'all don't like this, but my job is to, to lovingly help you. It may not be your fault, husbands, but it's always your responsibility. It's always your responsibility. She may carry wounds from the past baggage that she has been a part of. She may carry wounds from previous relationships. She may carry wounds from what her dad did to her, but you have been, she has been entrusted by God to you for you to tend that garden. That's your responsibility. And I've said this before, but the greatest definition I have ever heard of masculinity is this. Don't miss this. Look up here. The greatest definition of masculinity I've ever heard is this. The glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. That means I'm going to take responsibility for this. It may not be my fault, but God's entrusted her to me. What's happening with the kids may have happened while I was at work, but guess what? It's still my responsibility. What's happening with our finances? Yes, she may have gone off and spent way too much money at Amazon. It's still my responsibility because I'm the leader. You cannot have a Jezebel without an Ahab. Men take responsibility. Leaders take responsibility. Let's get back to Elijah. Verse five, Ahab said to Obadiah, we must check every spring and valley in the land to see if we can find enough grass to save at least some of my horses and mules. 
So they divided the land between them. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. This is what Elijah's up against. His people are suffering. His people are dying. They are in drought, they are in famine, and he's thinking about his horses and his mules. That's how selfish this man is. That's how selfish this leader is. Elijah shows up. Verse seven. As Obadiah was walking along, he suddenly saw Elijah coming toward him. Obadiah recognized him at once and bowed low to the ground before him. Is it really you, my Lord Elijah, he asked. Yes, it is, Elijah replied. Now go and tell your master, Elijah is here. I just love this. I love, I love God and I love the boldness of this man to obey God. Because this is, here's the thing. Again, Ahab was looking for him. Ahab wanted to kill him. And then Elijah shows up and he's looking for Ahab. Here's the king of a nation going, I'm going to kill you if I find you. And he walks right up. Here I am. I don't know about you, but I get junior high school flashbacks reading this. It's like a fight's about to break out. Like, it's coming. I I had a friend of mine who used to say this. He would say, if you're looking for something, I got it. (laughs) Essentially, Elijah shows up with no fear of man, but with the absolute fear of God because he had the word of the Lord. He had the word of God. And he shows up looking for Ahab to tell him, not what he said. This is not about false male bravado. I'm tongue in cheek when I say the junior high school thing. He didn't show up with some false male bravado. He showed, it, he showed up, excuse me, with the word of the Lord and confidence in his God. And he shows up with, with God's word. But listen to how Obadiah responds, verse nine. It says, oh sir, Obadiah protested, what harm have I done to you that you are sending me to my death at the hands of Ahab? For I swear by the Lord your God that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time he was told, Elijah isn't here. King Ahab forced the king of of that nation to swear to the truth of his claim. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here. But as soon as I leave you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you away to who knows where. When Ahab comes and cannot find you, he will kill me. Yet I have been a true servant of the Lord all my life. Has no one told you, my Lord, about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophet? I hid a hundred of them in two caves and supplied them with food and with water. And now you say, go and tell your master, Elijah is here. Sir, if I do that, Ahab will certainly kill me. Obadiah is saying, I want nothing to do with this. I want nothing because God may all of a sudden show up and you change your mind. And if I do, I'm a dead man. Because this king, Ahab, has been literally going to nations demanding you. He wants you dead. And if I show up and I tell him this and you're not there, I'm a goner. Verse 15, but Elijah said, I swear. Don't, this is so good. Don't miss this. He said, I swear by the Lord Almighty in the presence, excuse me, in whose, whose presence I stand that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. Elijah says, I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna show up. Again, what boldness, what courage. 
And I believe this verse actually tells us what gave him that courage and what gave him that boldness. We can find that in this statement. He said, I swear by the Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand. Elijah was not afraid to face a king because he knew that the king of kings was with him. He knew that. He knew that God was with him. And like I mentioned before, there are things, listen, please don't miss this. There are many things out there to intimidate you. There are many things to try to get you to cower down and to cower away. But child of God, hear me when I say this. If God is with you, he's more than the whole world against you. If God is with you, who can be against you? And I know that sounds good, but here's the thing. When you have a word from God, you have something more than anything that the world can throw at you. Let there be a confidence in you that God is with you. I know times are tough. I know circumstances are hard. But rest assured, God is with you. And he's for you. And if that is the case, it doesn't matter what you're facing. The Bible says it this way, greater is he that's in me than he who's in the world. Take courage, take heart. Verse 16, so Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. Verse 17, when Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? Ahab shows up with accusations. He shows up pointing the finger to Elijah saying, it's all your fault. The reason why we're in this mess is because of you. This is how twisted this king's thinking is. He allows Jezebel to come into his kingdom, bring about idol worship, deceive the people of God, and twist the morality of this nation. He allows this. And when God sends a prophet to confront him, he blames the prophet. That is what sin does to us. Sin twists our thinking. Sin twists the way that we see things. It, it creates a lens in which we see the world that causes us not to see it clearly. That's the nature of sin. Have you, let, me, let, me ask, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever confronted someone or had a conversation to help someone and point out a blind spot in their life and throughout that conversation, all they could do is point the finger at you? Yeah, I'm doing this because you did that. I'm doing this because you did that. I wouldn't be in this situation if you wouldn't have done this when I was four years old. And I've said this before, sometimes when people see you, they're not even, they, they're looking at you, but they see their fourth grade bus driver who hurt them. It's the lens in which they see the world. That's what sin does to us. Sin causes us, and I'm gonna go back to this for a moment. Sin causes us to not take responsibility. It causes us to shift the blame on other people, even when we know something is clearly wrong with what we're doing. And we may say it's human nature. I won't say it's not human nature. It's our sin nature. It's a part of our sin nature. How do I know that? Because the very first sin, they did the same thing. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, God shows up to hold them accountable for what they did. 
God is walking through the garden and he's saying, Adam, where are you? And where is Adam? He's hiding. And he's covering himself with fig leaves. How many of you have ever felt a fig leaf? That was not comfortable. And they're covering themselves, hiding, and God shows up and he says, what have you done? What was Adam's response? God, the woman you gave me. That's why I say what I say about responsibility being the definition of what true biblical masculinity is. And really for all of us, we need to take responsibility because in that moment, God came to hold Adam accountable. And what did Adam do? Shifted the blame. God, this was your fault. And since that moment, all of us, when it comes to the sin in our life, our knee-jerk reaction is to shift the blame to someone else. I'm doing this because they. I'm doing this because of how I was raised. I'm doing this because I was hurt. Can I be honest? We stand before God. Here in my heart is your pastor when I say this. We stand before God. We may have reasons, but we have no excuses. We stand before God without excuse. I counsel, and I've told y'all this before. There's times when I counsel men, and they come in, and I hear the worst of the worst of stories. I did this, pastor. I did this. And I never forget counseling a man. And I've said this multiple times, but I, I counsel one man in particular I remember, and I'm unpacking with him why he, why he was unfaithful to his wife. And he's telling me, well, this happened, and, and this happened, and I remember this moment, and, and this happened. And I stopped the conversation and I said, can I tell you the real reason why you did that? And I'm sure he was expecting some real deep emotional healing moment. I said, because you wanted to. That's the real reason why you did it. There, there is iniquity, there is sin in our life that causes sin patterns, that cause things to be more intense, temptations to be more intense, but the real reason why we do them is because we want to. We're tempted by things that our flesh wants to do, and that's what we go after. I told our men's group this, now we have a men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings, I told them this, I said, I have never once been tempted by broccoli. I have, I have never walked into a room and said, I can only have some of those green beans. I hate green beans. Can I just tell you that? I absolutely hate, and every time that I say that, inevitably some Cajun woman comes up to me and says, baby, you haven't had mine. I don't want yours. I don't want yours, I don't like yours. I've never had them, but I don't like them. But we are tempted by the things that our flesh wants. We're tempted by the things that our flesh wants. And we give in to those things because we want to. So when we stand before God, we stand without excuse. Ahab is shifting the blame instead of taking the responsibility. I just, I think that in our lives, things would go so much smoother in our lives when someone points out something to us, if we would say, you know what, I'm sorry. You know what, I didn't see that, but I see that now. You're right, please forgive me. That's called taking responsibility. 
that's how the healing of relationships actually take place. That's how reconciliation takes place. We talk often about forgiveness. Forgiveness happens on one side of the equation. If someone hurts you and they keep hurting you and you know their goal is to continue to hurt you, you don't have to be reconciled to them, but you do have to forgive them. Forgiveness happens for you so that your heart is clear and you're right with God. But reconciliation happens when there are people owning their part and you're owning yours and you are able to reconcile. That's where reconciliation happens. And the key word in all of this, please don't miss this, is taking responsibility. You know what, Elijah, the nation is in a wreck in the position that it's in right now because I didn't take responsibility. I didn't fear the Lord. I did this, but he didn't do that. And I love what Elijah says, verse 18. I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshiped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported, excuse me, who are supported by Jezebel. Elijah takes no responsibility for this because he had none to take. And he says, listen, even if you won't hold yourself accountable, God will still hold you accountable. You and your family did this to God's people. And then he goes on to make this challenge. He confronts them and he says, call the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. It's time for a showdown. It's time to see whose God is really God. And he calls this. He calls this moment and it's about to happen. I want you to see this as well. One man against 850 prophets. God plus you is always the majority. Does not matter what you are facing. God plus you is always the majority. Verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel. Now get, I want you to envision this. I I don't want you to miss this because this is important. This is the culmination of this whole thing. Ahab calls the nation together. They're in the stands watching this thing happen. And then he summons the 850 prophets of Baal and of Asherah. Let's keep going. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. See, this was the moment of truth. This is when it was all about to come out. The people had been holding on to some semblance of the fear of God while worshiping these false idols at the same time. They were holding on to this going, okay, we we know God is the one who gave us this land and we we don't want to make him angry, but man, we're really enjoying these false idols and these false prophets and these false things that we're serving. So we're going to stay in between until God shows up using Elijah and says, none of that. You have to choose. You will either serve God or you will serve idols, but you cannot serve both. And Elijah brings them to this moment, this key moment where they have to decide and they have to choose. 
And it's easy for us to look at them and go, man, I can't believe they would do that. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. Remember the definition of an idol is an unauthorized noun that we, are, we give our allegiance to expecting it to meet some need in our lives. There are many idols that we worship in our day and time, like money, like sex, like prominence, like the fear of man, like people's admiration for us. These are all false idols. And there comes a moment when God will deal with our hearts and say, either you're going to serve that or you're going to serve me, but you cannot serve both. And that's what Elijah does. He stands there in front of them and he says, you have to pick. This is the moment of truth. And this was a confrontation, not just with Elijah to the king, but with Elijah to the nation. This was a moment of confrontation for the moment, for the, the nation. Now think about this for a moment because something happened early on that you may not have kept, you might not have caught, but God told Elijah, I'm getting ready to send rain. How could God send rain if the people weren't repentant yet? How could God send the blessings when their hearts had not turned yet? I love the way A.W. Pink put it. He said it like this. He said, it is useless to pray for his blessings, talking about God, for his blessings while we refuse to put away that which is called down his curse. Another way of putting that is if you want God's blessings, you have to do it his way. I sit down with young couples often and we're doing premarital counseling and they come and they say, Pastor, we want, we want this to be blessed and we want to do this the right way. That's why we're coming to sit down and talk with me. One of the questions is, are you living together? Well, yeah. God can't bless that. Church, hear me. If you want God's blessing, you have to do it his way. You have to do it his way. It's not that he doesn't want to, but God is holy and he refuses to bless that which he's cursed. And God had placed a curse on this nation by pulling back that rain and that dew. And he was not just going to go, ah, I changed my mind. See, God is not like a parent like us. He holds, he makes good on his discipline promises. God doesn't come home from work tired and go, ah, I'm just too tired. God does what's best for us when he is disciplining us. And he disciplines, don't miss this, please don't miss this. He disciplines those that he loves. God doesn't discipline us because he hates us. God disciplines us because he loves us. If God hated us, he would go do whatever you want to do and reap the consequences of that. But he disciplines those he loves. Are y'all with me? Let's keep going. If we want God's blessings, we have to do it his way. Before the rain could come, the hearts of the people had to turn. Verse 22, then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, this is interesting because Elijah was not the only prophet left. And God later corrected that thinking. But yet it was only Elijah who was willing to take this stand and stand before the king and before the nation and say, God alone is holy. So he makes this declaration and says, it's just me against all of them. I want you to see something. Don't miss this. In this moment, popular opinion did not matter. 
There will come a time for those of us who live for the opinions of people. What do they think about me? What do they think about me? What does culture say? What does Instagram say? What does Facebook say? What does the news say? What does this say? Listen, there will come a moment where it does not matter how many people have a belief. If that belief is wrong, God will hold us accountable for what is true. One person against five million people who believe a lie is still greater than the five people who believe a lie. Because God stands with truth. And this was one man up against these false prophets. And one day, all of us, hear me, hear me as your pastor when I say this. One day, we will stand before God and it will not matter how many people believe the lie. We knew the truth. Again, we will stand before him with many reasons, but without excuse. God knew before he could send this rain, the people's hearts had to change. And he sent this man to stand in front of the nation against these 850 false prophets. Before this nation, with the nation hanging in the balance. Verse 23, Elijah says, now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of the altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. The challenge is given. It's very clear. We're going to find out who's God today. We're going to know who is God today. And this is yet another attack on the quote-unquote deity of Baal. Because like I mentioned before, Baal and Asherah together were supposed to be the gods of fertility. They were supposed to make the land fruitful, and God comes in and judges that by making the land barren. Now, Baal Baal alone was thought of as the sun god. So he's supposed to be the sun god, yet God sends Elijah and says, okay, let your god, the quote-unquote sun god, send down fire then. If he is who you say he is, then he can do this. And God is getting ready to expose the impotence of their false idol. The fake facade that their false idol was. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first. For there are many of you, choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called, down, they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbled around the altar that they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. <laughs> You'll have to shout louder. He scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's a daydreamer, or he's daydreaming, or maybe he's relieving himself. In other words, maybe he's using the bathroom and he's not here. Or maybe he's away on a trip, or he's asleep, and you have to wake him up. Elijah is openly taunting and mocking their false god. Now, for some of you, because I know some of you well, this does not give you an excuse I mean, this does not give you an excuse to go and mock those who don't believe. 
Doesn't mean you go get on Instagram. Pastor Gabe said, so I'm going to go and make fun of all of the false gods on Instagram. And listen, that does not give, our goal is not to be like Elijah. Our goal is to be like Jesus. Just remember that. Jesus didn't do that. But nonetheless, God sanctioned Elijah to do what he was doing. Because it was these false prophets that had been mocking God. It was these false prophets that had been deceiving God's people. And this was now God's moment. And like Proverbs talks about mocking us on the, on the days when we refused wisdom, God himself will laugh. This is God making good on the words of Proverbs, mocking, going, hey, guess what? You turned away from me. Let's see how great your God is. And it exposed his impotence. It exposed the fact that he was nothing more than a false idol. Verse 28, so they shouted louder and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him. Don't miss this. As he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down, he took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. I want you to think about this for a moment. Elijah had to repair the altar of God. The God who gave them that land. The God who brought them out of Egypt. The God who supplied all of their needs according to his riches and glory. They had allowed his altar to be torn to nothing. And one man with the fear of God came back and restored that altar in front of them. Repaired that altar for two nations to see. Verse 32, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar long enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and poured the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran down the altar and even filled the trenches. Get this picture. This is God showing off. This is God going, I'm God. And you can set up whatever circumstances you want. When I'm ready to move, I'm ready to move. And they're pouring water on this sacrifice Three times, the scene is being set. I also want you to see something. In this time, this is the Old Testament. Remember this. And if there was going to be atonement made for sin or a sacrifice made for sin, blood had to be shed. An animal had to be sacrificed. So this was not just a great show of display of God's power, though it was that. This was also Elijah going, blood is going to be shed for the behalf of the people of Israel. For the sins of the nation, blood is getting ready to be shed. And he was making a sacrifice on behalf of their sin. This is not just a really cool Old Testament story. This is for us. Because there was, a, there was blood that was shed. There was a sacrifice that was made 
for our sin. And it was greater than the blood of bulls. It was greater than the blood of sheep. It was the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, shed for us. Listen to me. It was great enough to redeem us. It's great enough to redeem a nation. This blood was shed. This was a sacrifice that was made for us. And this is a picture of what God is doing with us, even in our day and in our midst. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But Elijah's standing up and he's saying, you're not going to falter between two opinions. You've got to stop this. And church, I encourage you, some of you, you've been faltering between. I'm in church because I, I just want to stay close enough, but I'm really living like this. How long will you falter between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. If your idols are your God, then follow them. But choose today who you will serve. Verse 36, at the usual time for offering, excuse me, for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Verse 37, oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stone, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. In one moment, in one instance, that's all God needs. In one moment, God turned the hearts of a nation back to himself. God, I pray that we have a moment like that in our nation. That God turns the heart of our nation to him. Don't miss this. God withheld rain so that he could send fire. He withheld the rain for three and a half years so that he could send his fire. And the people see that he alone is God. Again, he disciplines those he loves. They repented and they turned to God. God heard Elijah's prayer and answered it with fire. And that fire burned not only the sacrifice, but everything around it. And I mentioned Jesus earlier because I want you to catch this. I want you to see how this applies to you today. This was a type and a shadow of the day of Pentecost. This was a picture of the time when Jesus' blood was shed for us as a sacrifice and God shows his acceptance and his approval for that blood being shed when he sent the fire of God down on us, the church, to consume everything. There is a fire that is available for us God's fire, his precious Holy Spirit to live in us, to be his light, to be his witnesses for the world to see. With Elijah, all God needed was one man who was unwilling to compromise to turn a nation back to himself. 
What would happen if God had a church of people full of his fire, full of his passion, unwilling to compromise in our communities, in our state, in our nation? What could God do? God withheld the rain so that he could send the fire. Verse 40. Let me say this first. The fire of God has the power to purify our life. If you're struggling with your mind, I don't know about this, I don't know my thinking. The fire of God has the power to purify your mind, to renew your thinking through his word, but also to transform our communities. Some of you are like, man, my neighborhood is just horrible. It seems like it's going downhill. It needs much more than new leadership and new litigation with it or, or community action programs. Those are all great and those are amazing, but what it needs is God. What it needs are the people of God, full of the fire of God and love, unwilling, uncompromising love for God, unwilling to compromise. That's what it needs to see. And God can move on his behalf. Verse 40, then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all and Elijah took them down to the Keshron Valley and killed them there. This is the Old Testament. Just remember that. But why would he go that far as to do that? Because in this nation, he didn't, it was like cancer. He did not want a single cell of it left to, to corrupt the body. Thank God we don't have surgeons who come in and go, oh, well, I got part of the cancer. I will just let leave the other. No, no, they want to get it all. Elijah wanted to get all of this corruption out of God's people. One man who's unwilling to compromise. One man who was willing to have his life threatened. One man who was willing to be uncomfortable. One man who was willing to obey God and turn the heart of a nation around. One man that was filled with the fire of God. This is the life of Elijah. And my prayer and hope for you is that like that sacrifice, you say, God, I'm here. Fill me with your fire. Fill me with your passion. Fill me with an unwillingness to compromise so that I can burn with passion for you. Please close your eyes. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this study, this life that we've done in this incredible man's life. Lord, I pray for us as your church, your people. You sent your fire 2,000 years ago for the church, your Holy Spirit, so that we could be a light to the world. We could be your witnesses to the world. Help us to be people who aren't stuck between two decisions. Not double-minded going, we want to serve God, but we also want to serve this God. Not lukewarm, trying to be cold and trying to be hot at the same time. Help us solidify in our heart. The Lord is God and I'm serving him. Help us to be that light in this community. Help us to be this light in St. Martinville, in Broussard, in Brobridge, Cypress Island, Coda Homes, New Iberia, Youngsville. Lauraville, make your people your light and your witness 
for the nations of the world to see. Turning the hearts of men back to you. If you're here this morning and you would be honest with yourself and say, Pastor, I'm far away from God. My heart is far from him. It does not belong to him. I'm not talking about how often you come to church. You could sit in these pews every single week or in the pew of your church every single week. That does not matter. What matters is a simple question that Jesus addressed with the religious leader when he told him, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you are first born again. What does born again mean? It is just how it sounds. You come to him one way and he makes you a completely new creation, a new person. It's a moment in time where Jesus becomes the Lord of your life. And we like to say it like this, it's as simple as ABC, A, you admit. Admit what? That you're a sinner. That there's sin in your life that separates you from God. You don't, you don't call it anything else other than it is. You stand before him without excuse and you say, God, there's sin in my life that separates me from you. And in B, you believe. Believe what? That God sent Jesus to die on that cross for you. So that those sins could be paid for by his sacrifice, by the blood that he shed for you. And in C, you confess. Confess what? That he is now Lord of your life. In other words, he's saying this. The same thing he told his disciples, come and follow me. Choose this day whom you will serve. If the Lord is God, follow him. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I've not been following him, but I want to follow him. On the count of three, I want to pray for you and lead you in a prayer, but I want to acknowledge what I'm praying with. If you say, today is my day, I want to be born again, born of the water, born of the spirit and a new creation. I want you to lift up your hand on the count of three and I want to pray for you. One, two, three. If that's you, lift it up. Thank you. Anyone else? If you say, this is my moment, I want to be born again. I need Jesus. Thank you. Ma'am, I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I see your hand. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Praise God. Thank you, sir. I see your hand. Choose this day whom you will serve. Praise God. Thank you. You can put them down. Church, I want you to pray this prayer out loud with me. And we're going to pray with every person praying this prayer today. And it means it from their heart. These words are not magical. They don't save you. But your surrendered heart and the sacrifice that Jesus made and the drawing of his spirit is what's going to save you. Pray this prayer with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. I turn away from my sin. I repent of my sin. And I choose to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you're my father. Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's celebrate with every person that prayed that prayer.